All right, well, if you're not there, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. It's been a few weeks. We, uh, we focused on Joseph around Christmas time, and then for the New Year's, we looked at Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8, and now it's time to get back and deal with the life of Peter. And we're going to see some interesting things today. We're going to see a change is taking place in Peter's life. We're going to see a different man today than the man that we met in the Gospels as he was younger and years ago. We'll, I'll point that out when we get there. But today we're going to talk a little bit about marriage because that's what the passage is about. So I don't want you to say, well, that doesn't apply to me. Uh, I'm not married or whatever it may be. Uh, we're talking to un women who are married to unbelieving husbands. You might say, well, that's not me. There are lessons here for each and every one of us this morning. I don't care where you are, there are biblical lessons that you and I can take out and apply in the week to come. So let's just talk about marriage for a moment and think about a wedding and we go to weddings and everybody's all smiling and laughing and there's food and there's fellowship and they're taking pictures and everything's just wonderful. We're thinking, boy, we did great. I got this great gal. I got this great guy. Well, if you notice, the first point in your outline is marriage ain't no Hallmark movie. Marriage ain't no Hallmark movie. I had one elder tell me he liked that title, and uh, Janie told me as we was putting this together, she said, Jenny's not going to like that because it's not good grammar. But I got her approval this morning. I'm trying to make a point. Life ain't no Hallmark movie, and marriage ain't no Hallmark movie. I want to read a, a quote from a book that I found. It's uh, Secrets to Inner Beauty. It doesn't take long for the newlyweds to discover that everything in one person nobody's got. There's some more grammar for Jenny right there. Everything in one person nobody's got. They soon learn that a marriage license is just a learner's permit and ask with agony, is there life after marriage? An old Arab proverb states that marriage begins with a prince kissing an angel and ends with a ball-headed man looking across the table at a fat lady. <laughs> I didn't say that, folks. I'm reading it, okay? Now, it get, gets better. Socrates told his students, by all means, marry. If you get a good wife, twice blessed you will be. If you get a bad wife, you'll become a philosopher. <laughs> Count Hermann Kieserling said it well when he stated that the essential difficulties of life do not end, but rather begin with marriage. So we have the wedding versus the marriage. That's what the two ideals there. So whether you're in a family setting with a, with a marriage and, and, and everyone involved there, or whether it's just your family, uh, later in life, we are all moving forward through a fog. And I heard an example in a business setting years ago, and it was so good, I thought, okay, how can I adapt that to a uh, church setting and family setting? So here's, here's what I've come up with. Picture the family in the car, driving down the road, dad's driving the car. Dad's driving a car, the teenage son 
is pushing the gas pedal all the way to the floor to go as fast as they can. Mom is pushing on the brake just as hard as she can. And the teenage daughter is looking out the back window giving directions. Is that not a picture of family life? I, I think it absolutely is. I got another quote for you. If I can find it here. Okay, let's see. In the U.S. and other Western-style cultures, people tend to marry people that they are attracted to to another's appealing qualities. A fresh smile, a pleasing figure, athletic ability, a cheerful distribution, charm. These qualities can change. The physical attributes actually deteriorate with age. Meanwhile, surprises may surface. Poor housekeeping, a tendency towards depression. Disagreements over sex. The partners in an, in an arranged marriage, over half of all marriages in the international community, do not pick their relationships based on mutual affections. Having heard your parents' choice, you accept that you will live for many years with someone you now barely know. Thus, the overriding question changes from whom should I marry to giving this to given this partner what kind of marriage can we construct together? And that's a very, very good question. Can two believers live together and have a wonderful life? I think they can. I believe, and someone gave me a hard time about this because he disagreed with me, but I'm sticking to my guns. I believe any two Christians, Christian man, Christian woman, if they're committed to the Lord, if they're living by God's word, they can have a wonderful marriage. Now, there'll be different personalities, things to work through. I get all of that. Any two Christians that are absolutely committed to the Lord and living by God's word should be able to have a great marriage. However, I'll go back to my original title. The real world of marriage isn't a Hallmark movie. Now, Braden's in the nursery this morning, and I'm going to bust his tough guy. Oh, he's right there. Oh, I probably wouldn't have said that if I knew he was sitting right there. I'm going to damage his big tough guy football image now, this big football player. Maybe I should whisper. Janie and Braden watch Hallmark movies together. Okay. Now, how long is the Hallmark movie? About two hours? At the beginning of each movie, they'll both make a prediction at when, what time in the movie the couple will kiss. And then they'll compare to see which one's right, okay? But life ain't a Hallmark movie. Now, there's a very sad, interesting, strange thing that's going on in the world of marriage today. There are more books on marriage than any other time in the history of our country. Yet, the divorce rate in this country is just a little over 50%. And you might say, well, that, that's the culture, that's the world. Yes, but the divorce rate in the church, folks, is just about as high as that. It's almost as high as the world. It's about right at 50%. And there's something very wrong there. And I blame it, first of all, on the churches because the churches are not teaching and preparing people 
how to live in these different relationships. Right now we're talking about marriage. The church needs to be teaching how to be a good father, how to be a husband, how to be a wife, what to expect in a marriage. So Christian marriages are falling apart today. So I'm going to contradict what I just said to a point. Just because a husband and wife are believers is no guarantee. But what I said originally was the more committed that couple is to God's word and living by it, the more successful their marriage will be. So don't kid yourself. Marriage is hard. You got to work at it. And you might look at some couple in here and you might think, boy, they've got their act together. Well, maybe they do, but I will guarantee you one thing. They have their issues. They have their problems. We all have them. We have to work at it. So Peter starts now by talking to Christian wives who are married to unbelieving husbands. You might say, well, that's not me. You know somebody like that. And you can apply the principles to yourself, whether you're married or you're not married. So he's talking to Christian wives married to unbelieving men, and he tells them how to win their husband to the Lord. So in verses 1 through 6, he's giving counsel to Christian wives. Counsel to Christian wives. So let's look at the first verse. In the same way, you wives... Be submissive to your own husband, so that if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. So we start out right at the beginning. In the same way, or therefore, what's he doing? He's building on the thoughts that he gave us in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Now, we're the family of God, so Paul uses the language that we are to put off and put on. So he's telling us now, Peter's using that same language, what we're to put off and what we're to put on. He's taking us back to chapter 2. Now, in verse 1, we have wives, be submissive to your husband. Now, this thought isn't new. Paul develops this. It's throughout the New Testament. But he's taking us back with the word in the same way, and therefore he's taking us back to chapter 2. In verse 13, he writes, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So that's all of us. Men, women, teenagers, married, single, single again, whatever it may be. Submit yourself to every human institution. Verse 18, servants, be submissive to your masters. So we could update that and say, employees, be submissive to your employers. And I'm going to take us back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, where the Lord gives us a significant, strong reason why the woman is here and why she is in a marriage situation. So this is a function of a woman who's in a marriage. So in chapter 2, verse 18, we read, Then the Lord's God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So ladies, one of your biblical functions, if you're married, is to help your husband. You're to help him. Now the word submit that Peter uses is a verb, and it means to voluntarily put yourself under someone else. Now you're only asked to do it with one man. 
You're not asked to do it with any other man. You're only asked to do it with one man, your man. You aren't asked to submit to any other man. But I appreciate the fact here that Peter doesn't dodge the issue. I think there are a lot of churches today that would dodge this issue. One reason we go verse by verse through a book is because it forces me to deal with something. If there's something there I don't understand, I better figure it out fast. If there's something that I'm told to do and I'm not doing it in my own life, I better get it straightened out before I stand here. And so this is just the next passage we have. This, so this is what we deal with. Now, you maybe you're single today, and you might say, well, I don't want to submit to a man. Well, okay, that's fine. That's great. No problem whatsoever. You don't have to. I'm thinking about a godly Christian woman that I worked with for 30 years. Her husband's health started declining. She cared for her husband. Her father moved in. She cared for him as he declined. Her aunt moved in. She cared for the aunt as the aunt declined. So after all three of them had passed away, she said to me, I will never get married again. And I said, why? And she said, because I don't want to have to care for anyone else. And that's great. She doesn't have to. That is perfectly fine. That's a biblical statement. There's nothing wrong with her saying that. Now, however, on the other hand, submission for a married woman is an obligation. It's an obligation. God's commanded. And he's tied it to authority in the home. There has to be some kind of structure and authority in the home. And it's not because one is better than the other. It's not because the husband is better than the wife. In fact, in my dealing in Christian churches, for good churches for most of my life, what I have seen in practice is that the majority of time, the wife is more godly than the man. I've seen it over and over again. The wife is more godly than the man. In many cases, the wife is smarter than the man. I've seen it. It happens. I'm thinking of a family member now. I'm not going to use names. They're both with the Lord now, but I'm not going to use names. I'm just going to say that his name is, is, is Bob. And when I was back in the workaday world, I was working with them and as trying to get a plan together so that they could care for their severely handicapped son when they were gone. And she would talk to me on the phone, and we would have conversations after conversation, and finally we kind of narrowed down what the plan was and what needed to happen. So she got her husband, Bob, on the phone. And she said, okay, Steve, summarize for him what we've talked about. So I brought him up to date, and then she said, okay, Bob, is that what you want to do? And he said, yes, that's what I want to do. And she said, okay, Steve, go ahead and do it. Now, what was going on there? She is actually more of a leader than he was. But what was she doing? She was trying to honor his position as the head of the house. She worked it up to a detailed point and said, okay, what do you want to do, husband? Yes, I want to do that. And that's fine. That's no problem with that whatsoever. Just acknowledging the gifts that are in the home. But she was trying as hard as she could to honor him in his position as the head of the home. Ephesians 5, verse 21 tells us 
that all of us are submit to submit to one another. I am to submit to you. You're to submit to me. Both husband and wife are to submit to Jesus Christ. So why does Peter want us to submit to human institutions, employers, husbands, children to parents? Well, the first reason is because it glorifies God. It glorifies God. So marriage isn't a Hallmark movie, but there are absolute times in a marriage when it's, when it's wonderful. Now, will you live happily ever, ever after with no problems? I don't think so. It's not going to happen. But life includes fantastic moments. It includes sad moments. Now, both of those, the fantastic moment and the sad moment, can make a marriage stronger or weaker. You decide. You decide what it's going to be. Now, Peter as he writes to us, is a married man. Now, at this point in his age, he's older, and his wife may not be around still. Maybe she's passed away, but Peter was a married man. How do I know that? 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5, Paul writes, Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Peter? So Peter's writing to us from his experience as a married man. He's also writing to people who think that they live in a hopeless situation. Now, maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you're looking at the world as hopeless. Maybe you're looking at your family or your marriage as hopeless. That's who he's writing to. Now, his focus has been on Christ in chapter 1 and chapter 2, and he's going to keep that focus here, but he's going to expand it out and start applying it in different situations as he talks about submission. So hear me, don't drift on this. God's plan is for a married couple to live in harmony and peace. So is your marriage challenging at times? Is it frustrating at times? Okay, they all are. They all are. You're putting two sinners in the same house. So what does Peter say? So that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, or if your husband is not living according to biblical principles. The marriage is a partnership. Don't ever let it become a competition in your home. Don't let your marriage become a competition. The two become one. So what does Peter say? So that they may be one without a word by the behavior of the wife. But not without the word of God. Now let me just back that up. I'm going to go to John chapter 5 verse 24. John 5, 24. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Heard a story a while back. Couple, husband and wife, neither one were Christians. The wife became a Christian. So she starts going to church and reading her Bible and she starts changing 
And she goes home and she starts living out biblical principles in the home. Well, her unbelieving husband at one point walked into the church, walked up to the pastor and said, what have you done to my wife? I can actually live with her now. And that's the way it should be. How do you win an unbeliever? How do you win an unbelieving husband? Love, kindness, patience. What's that sound like? Through the Spirit. You win them by the fruit of the Spirit. So in a Christian home, we should be trying to minister to one another. A believing wife is to encourage her husband to grow in the Lord. So ladies, if, you're, if your husband is making just the slightest effort to try and grow spiritually, encourage him. Feed him in it. Build him up in it. Says right here, Peter says, why are we doing it? That they may be one. Now the word may is there, which means there's no guarantee. They may not be one. But I'm going to make a statement which could be controversial, but I want you to listen to it and I want you to think about it during the week. Obeying God is more important than winning your husband. Do you believe that? Obeying God is more important than winning your husband. If it's just to win your husband, then the end justifies the means, and we can't go that far. Yet notice here that the wife is to be active. Her goal is to win or help the husband. And notice what Peter writes, without a word from the wife. Now, I thought about this just yesterday. I thought I had these notes all set and ready to go. And it occurred to me, this is Peter saying that. This is the man who talked his way through the Gospels and talked nonstop, struggled, would always had something to say. But now as a senior citizen adult approaching death, he said, so that your husband may be one without a word by the behavior of the wife. Peter's growing. Peter's changing. This is not the same man that we have seen earlier in our text. But the wife is to be active. Now, don't preach at him. I know of a uh, man that I went to seminary with. He was in the first class ever held at Greenville Seminary. He was in the first graduating class at Greenville Seminary. His father was an unbeliever. And he said to me, every time I see my father, I witness to him. Now, I'm not so sure about that. I'm not so sure about that. But you know, it's not my place. It's his dad. He knows his father. He's got a good relationship with the Lord. Maybe that's what he should be doing. I'm not so sure that I would want to witness to him every time I saw him. But the wife is to be active. So how can a wife be active without saying a word? Well, I think one example of that would be at a meal, she can bow her head and silently pray and thank the Lord for the meal, then lift her head up after the prayer and start having a great conversation. But Peter writes that he would be won by the behavior of the wife. So there's an activeness here. So we're not talking about it, but living it. And there's a balance there. And all of the Christian life is about finding the balance between these things. Now, usually I agree 
with anything that Jay Adams has said, but he, had, he made a statement that I'm not so sure about. I want to read it to you. Speaking of this passage, Jay Adams uses the word attack. He said, take the offensive, attack the husband, and take him captive for Christ. Now, I know what he means by that, but I, don't, I think that gives the wrong idea of what Peter is saying here. To be one without a word. So let me address our singles for just a moment. Maybe here today and you're single or you're single again. I don't know what the Lord has for you. But are you ready if your turn comes? Are you what a godly man would be looking for in a lady? We turn it around to the guys. Are you ready? Are you what a godly woman would be looking for? If you meet that godly woman and you say, boy, she's the one for me, and you're not growing spiritually, she might just say, no, you're not the right guy for me. So guys, ladies, you need to start getting ready now, growing spiritually now. So if that day comes your way, and it's not for everyone, but if it comes your way, you're ready for it. So as we apply this, ladies, study your actions. Why do you do what you do? Why do you submit? Or why would you say, no, I'm not going to submit? Another quote. This was a wise counsel to wives. It may seem strange that Peter's advice to wives is six times as long as that to husbands. That is because the wife's position was far more difficult than that of the husband. If a husband became a Christian, he would automatically bring his wife with him into the church. But if a wife became a Christian while her husband did not, she was taking a step which was unprecedented, which produced the greatest problems. I wonder myself why there's more verses for the woman than a man. I think that answers the question. Swindoll talks about a book with the title, When Life Hurts and Dreams Fade. But he adds to the title. He said, when life hurts and dreams fade and you are still married. It's not a hallmark. Now, I got another one I've got for you. Oh, this is the quote that whether they used about sitting around the table. I already read that. I'm not going to do it again. Okay. One of the points I want to leave with you today is you can have a wonderful, successful marriage. It's up to you. What do you want it to be? What do you want to make of it? It's your choice what comes of your marriage. Where are you getting your standards for your marriage? Where are you getting your role models? Are you getting them from Hollywood, from music, from artists, or are you getting them from heaven itself? In verse 6, God is giving us a good role model. In verse 6, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, but little L, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by it. So the Bible is holding Sarah up 
as a great example, but if you study the life of Sarah, there was a lot of things that Sarah did wrong. A lot of things we'd say, well, we don't want to, we don't want to copy that in Sarah, but here they're holding Sarah up as a role model in this particular area. So if you get your standards for your marriage from your husband, you're going to have trouble in your house. No doubt about it. But if both husband and wife are imitating Christ, living for Christ, and submitting to Christ in his desire to help you and help others, folks, you will have joy in your home. Now, Christ is a great example of submission because Jesus is equal with the Father, but we see Jesus submitting to the Father. When he's in the garden, he prays and he said, Lord, if possible, let this cup pass from me, the cross. If possible, let this pass from me. And God the Father said, no, it's not possible. So Jesus, the perfect man, and God himself is willing to submit to God the Father. And Jesus is just as much God as God the Father is. It's structure. There's order there. So do you lack joy in your home? Do you lack joy in your life? The best thing a Christian husband can do is to pattern himself after Jesus Christ. And the more he does that, the more joy and comfort you're going to have in your home, the greater relationship you're going to have between husband and wife. And again, ladies, if your man is trying to do that, even in the smallest way, encourage him in it. Now, as we move into verse 2, ladies, I want you to study what you do and what you say. And this can be applied to any situation, not just a marriage. Study what you do and what you say. Let's look at verse 2. As they, the unbelieving husband, observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So, okay, I will submit to him when he becomes the godly man that God wants him to be, or I will love my wife when she becomes the godly woman that God wants her to be. That's not what we're reading here. In verse 1, Peter is talking about a man who will not live a godly life. Now, maybe they both married as non-believers. She became a Christian. He is not a believer. So Peter isn't writing to perfect husbands. He isn't writing to perfect wives. But ladies, we see that submission is an opportunity. Ladies, it's an opportunity to win your unbelieving husband to the Lord. So God can use your submission in the home. God uses respectful behavior. Now, I don't know if do you, any of you watch the TV show The View. I, ho I hope you don't. Uh, I don't watch it, but I've seen little clips from it. And my opinion, when I've seen those clips, what I'm watching is a bunch of mean, nasty women. And I hope that's not what you're watching because that's not what Peter's talking about. He's talking about the opposite of that, your respectful behavior. So Peter is writing to women who are married to a man, men who will not obey God's word. Now, listen to me if you're drifting away. Come back. Ladies, you are not responsible for how your husband lives. You're not responsible for how your husband lives. You're responsible for how you live. 
Only God can change him. You can't change him. And a quote from Ruth Graham. There's been a number of quotes from Ruth Graham that I've used. This is a good one. Ruth Graham said, it is my job to love Billy. It's God's job to make him good. It's my job to love Billy. It's God's job to make him good. So notice what Peter said as they observe. So there's a careful observation going on. One writer said submission is a mark of spiritual strength. It's not a weakness in anyone. It's a mark of spiritual strength. He goes on. A believing wife is on display all the time. And that's true. All Christians are on display all the time, not just a believing wife in an unbelieving home. So ladies, would you submit to Jesus if you were married to him? You say, yes, but I'm not. We submit to authority. We submit to the police officer who pulls us over. Students submit to the teachers. Employees submit to their bosses. Wives submit to the husband. The children submit to mom and dad. And by being so, by doing that, we are submitting to Christ in each of those areas. And that's a very serious point. Now, someone might say, well, that doesn't apply today, which is what some churches would say. Well, Peter takes it all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, back to creation. God made Adam to be head over Eve. You have the Trinity, the Father's the head, the Son submits to the, to the Father, Jesus submits to the Father. Now, maybe in your home, you, you have it this way, uh, after dinner, I'll wash, you dry. Okay, that's not submission. That is the structure of your home. There's the difference between the two. I was heard about a movie. I did not see this movie. Maybe some of you did. I think the name is uh, A Greek Wedding. Any, any head, head shaking? Yeah, that's it. My big fat Greek wedding. I did not see the movie. But I heard this scene about the movie, and, and the daughter wants to marry a guy, and Dad doesn't approve of the guy, and so the daughter goes to mom and says, Dad's the head of the house, and Dad is saying, no, what am I supposed to do? And the mother said, let me talk to him. Yes, he's the head, but I am the neck that turns the head. And that's exactly right, ladies. In a marriage situation, you are that. So learn how, don't learn how to work your man. Learn how to work with your man. Yet honoring his headship, his God-given position as the head of the home. That's what uh, my aunt and uncle, my aunt was doing with my husband. So submission comes down to respect and obedience to God. Now when we move into verse 3, wives, be careful or beware of what you wear. Verse 3. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses. So the word adornment there has the idea of cosmetics. It's used to enhance someone's uh, beauty or to decorate. Now, he isn't saying don't use cosmetics. Now, there was a preacher who stood in this pulpit a year or so ago and implied that ladies should not be coloring their hair. Well, ladies, if you want to color your hair, color your hair. That's what he's talking about here. There's nothing wrong with that. What he's talking about here is the abuse of things. 
And there was some abuse that was going on there. The ladies of the day were going too far. They would put their hair up, but some of their hair would be up above their head this high, and they were putting real gold inside of their hair. Now, when I, I grew up under a, a, a good pastor in Northern Virginia, and speaking of cosmetics and things like that, he said, if the barn needs painting, paint it. So some of us guys need some painting from time to time, don't we? The key here is balance in all areas of life. So today, we can go too far with the external, the makeup, whatever it may be. Some of the ladies may have to have just the latest, newest style. Nothing wrong with them new styles. But I got in trouble a few months ago when I, when I said something along this line. But some of, a, some of us as believers need to spend a little bit more time in this area. We need to go to the store. We need to buy something new. We might need a little bit of what on and on we could go. I got in trouble for doing that in a joking way with somebody a few months ago. But there's that balance, okay? Next point I want you to see is that submission is an ornament. Submission is an ornament. And we just finished the Christmas season, and I still have our tree up in our house. If you come to my house tonight, you're going to see it. But we took the Christmas ornaments off, and we put on winter ornaments. So we're going to keep it up for a while. But submission here is pictured as an ornament. You think of the bright lights, and they're, they're reflecting off of the Christmas tree ornaments and balls and things like that. That's what he's talking about. The word adornment here means has to do with the cosmos, the ordered cosmos, which is the opposite of chaos. God wants there to be order in our lives and in our families and in our homes. Now, in verse 4, we get the ballots, and he starts with the word but. So don't let it be just the external, and he talks about that, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. That gentle and quiet spirit. That's not, that, Peter was not a gentle and quiet spirit in the gospel. He's growing. Someday, the external will fade. Going back to that bald-headed man sitting across the table from the overweight woman. That's what he's talking about here. This great exchange takes place and as we lose the physical, we should be gaining and growing and spiritually in, in, the God, in an area of godliness. However, but listen, ladies, and to all of us, your internal attitude is more important than what you wear on the outside. So ladies, watch your attitude and what you wear. Now, doesn't that apply to all of us? He's addressing married couples, but this applies to all of us. Watch your attitude and watch what you wear. What should you be wearing? What should all of us be wearing? A gentle and quiet spirit. Why? Because he talks about how that reflects the hidden person of the heart. So he's talking about now the source of your character. The source of your character is invisible. But it's going to show itself in what you wear, what you don't wear, what you say, what you don't say, and it's going to show in your attitude. One man made this point, I thought it was pretty good. He said, you can dress up pretty fast. How long does it take to dress up? 
For guys, a couple minutes maybe. Girls, maybe a little bit long. We're not too long. Okay, how long does it take to dress up your heart? Folks, that takes a lifetime, a lifetime. So ladies, what are you teaching your children, your grandchildren, about how they dress? We're going out on the internet. People are listening to this. Are you advising them on how they dress their heart? Not just their clothing, but are you advising them on how they dress their heart? So Peter's goal is to help us find a balance here between the external and the internal, which is a precious sight in God's eyes. And what is it? A peaceful and a gentle, quiet spirit. That's a challenge for all of us. We'll keep looking at it as the weeks go by. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for these guidelines. We all need them. He's addressing ladies that are married to a non-believing husband. But folks, Lord, this applies to all of us. Every one of us here need to hear every word that's been said today. So I pray, Lord, that you will accomplish this in our lives, that we may be known for quiet and gentle spirit, as Christ was. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.